and so it seemed to me uh, that it, it would be helpful that we would I would take a look at the two issues that were the most burning. One was um, Roman Catholicism, and the other was Islam. Uh, we haven't gotten through Roman Catholicism yet, uh, but once I came back and started doing a little bit of study, I found out that uh, anybody who believes in the doctrine of justification by faith alone is under the anathema of the um, of the Roman Catholic Church. So that means we have to explain ourselves uh, and find out whether uh, we should switch sides. Um, so I, I've tried to offer you some information concerning that. We started off with justification by faith and gone to some things. And, and by the way, next week, we really come to what I think is the... Um, well, it's called by the, uh, the reformers as the formal cause of the Protestant Reformation. It has to do with Scripture, um, sola scriptura, uh, Scripture alone. And we're, we're going to look at that a couple of three weeks next week, which is, um, you know, justification by faith is called the material cause of the of the Protestant Reformation, and sola scriptura is called the formal cause of um, the Protestant Reformation. And we're going to take a few weeks to look at sola scriptura next week. But there was one other item that I wanted to look at before we got to what I think is the the one of the real hearts of the matter, that is Scripture alone, and it has to do with um, it has to do with the sacrament. It has to do with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Um, that's what we call it. Others call it communion. Some call it the Eucharist. Um, uh, that's the word that is used in Roman Catholicism the most is the word Mass, and um, and I want to address it tonight because it's a bigger issue than I think you know it is. So um, we're going to look at that, and then next week we'll jump into this sola scriptura thing. But guys, um, I think a lot of people know that in in the the, the Christian world there are three views of the Lord's Supper. Um, there's what's called transubstantiation. There's the word. There's a, another view called consubstantiation, and then there is what is called <clears throat> maybe the Protestant Reformed view, a Zwinglian view which is uh, held pretty much by all Protestants. Um, but I, there, there seems to be the notion among uh, Christians that, well, they're, you know, just kind of like uh, eschatology. There's some, there's three different views, and, uh, and all of these, uh, you know, Christians just choose their view, you know. And, and uh, it's not really a big deal which, which one you choose, because all three of them are pretty good. Well, um, I, I want to suggest that that is not right, um, and that uh, the Roman Catholic view of the, the Lord's Supper is is uh, not just something that is a um, uh, intramural debate. It has to do with some uh, some real foundational and um, critical issues that I want to draw to your attention tonight. Um, but it, um, I, I think the thing that's in your mind is the whole issue of transubstantiation and that uh, uh, Roman Catholics believe that you're actually eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. We're going to come to that. Um, but in all honesty, ladies and gentlemen, that's not the that's not the big issue. Um, the issue of transubstantiation is big, but it's not the big issue in terms of the, the error that is made in the Roman Catholic view of that sacrament. So I want to show you a, a couple of things before we even get to transubstantiation. I want to read you some quotes. And by the way, guys, I've been meaning to say this for weeks. You know, um, I have been encouraging you to go online and, and uh, find out. I mean, just Google um, um, uh, perpetual virginity, for instance, of Mary. And um, and I had a uh, lady come up to me last week, and she said, I just saw it, Dr. Young, it was just great, and I read the Wikipedia article. Well, don't read the Wikipedia uh, article. That's not the good one. Go to go to the Roman Catholic sites. Um, the Wikipedia article is a good article, and it says exactly what I've been saying. But, I mean, uh, um, 
if you want to hear, go to the horse's mouth, you know, you know when you, when you Google something, they give you all these options that you can look at, and the Wikipedia article is always up there. Forget that one. Go to the other ones. This one is um, uh, thelatinmass.com. <laughs> um, that's written by Roman Catholics. So that's the ones that you need to read, just to make sure that I'm getting it right. All right, because that's the ones I'm reading. <laughs> All right, but guys, um, um, there's there's a couple of issues before you can even get to the whole issue of um, uh, transubstantiation, and um, and I've used this term up here before, but I'm not sure. Um, I got it going. Okay, um, uh, it's never worked on the first time, um, guys. Sacraments in Roman Catholicism are X. Oper, operato. I've written that up here before. But that's critical, ladies and gentlemen, that sacraments in Roman Catholicism are ex opera operato. Now, what in the world does that mean? What is that? That's a, um, uh, of course, a Latin phrase. And by the way, it is found, that phrase is found in the Roman Catholic uh, Catechism itself in question 229, where it states specifically that sacraments in Roman Catholics Roman Catholicism are ex opera operato. Um, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of ways that I mean I like to translate it like this. It operates because it operates. Or out of the operation it operates. Or it it actually does what it signifies. Let me give you the words out of the the, the Roman Catholic um, catechism itself. Um Ex opera operato means it works, but it works by the very fact that the sacramental action is performed. Do you get that? Sacraments are outward signs of inward grace instituted by Christ for our sanctification. Now, there's that's the key phrase, for our sanctification. That is, sac- um, um, that they are... By the very fact that the sacramental action is performed. What that means is this. That there is grace conveyed simply by participating in the act. So, if you do it, the act, then things happen. That is ex opera operato. You could come in as an unbeliever. You could come in, and in fact, well, I'll read that later, but um, um, guys, it means that just by participating in the event, it works. You could have just, um, um, who knows what you've done, but it, it is, it works by the very fact that the sacramental action is performed. Gang, um, it does what it signifies. Now, what does the Lord's Supper signify? But broken body and shed blood. That because sacraments are ex opera operato, that means it works just because you did it. There is grace conveyed, sanctifying grace. You heard that last phrase. Uh, instituted by Christ for our sanctification. That is, by my participating in it, no matter where my heart is, no matter where my head is, no matter where kind of sin I'm in, it, it has a sanctifying effect on me. Because sacraments work ex opera operato. Do you get that? 
All sacraments in Roman Catholicism are like that. They work just because you do them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is a vast distinction between sacraments in Protestantism and sacraments in Roman Catholicism. Um, and that's the first thing that you've got to see about this sacrament or any sacrament in Roman. They are, they, they, they're, a, their meaning is different. Not just their symbolic meaning, but their significance, the role that they play, the thing that they're doing. It is said that grace is communicated in the event itself. Um, okay, so that's the first problem that we have here, guys, in terms of the difference. The thing that drove Protestant reformers absolutely batty was the, that, that Roman Catholicism insists that the sacrament is a sacrifice. Now I know you know, that doesn't that doesn't strike you very much. Uh sitting there, well, what the heck does that mean? You know. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is enormous. And let me try to explain. All right. First of all, I'm going to read to you again from the Creed of Pope Pius the Fourth. By the way, if you can read it, this is on LatinMass.com. This is one of the four authoritative creeds of the Catholic Church. Okay? Now, I don't know what the other three are. I tried to find that, but nobody would tell me who the other... But this is one of the four of them. This is one of the four, and the other three, I don't know what they are. But this is one of them, all right? This is the creed of... And by the way, the reason that Pope Pius IV is kind of esteemed is because he historically brought the Council of Trent to an end. You know, the Council of Trent went on for 25 years, and he's the one that finally brought it to its glorious termination, um, and consequently, he's really revered. Now, um, this is in his creed, um, and, and that phrase that I just used, I got from here, that they confer grace. Sacraments confer grace. That is, that by your participation in the thing, Grace is communicated to you. And it, and it does good things for you. Just by, just by doing it. Now, but that's not the, uh, that's not the thing that drove the Protestant reformers batty. This is the thing that did. Now guys, I'm gonna read you a paragraph. This. And you gotta listen. <laughs> because this is enormous. Coming from the creed of Pius IV, one of the four creeds of the Catholic Church. I profess likewise that in the Mass there is offered to God a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice for the living and the dead. All right. So in this, this sacrament, a true and proper Propitiatory. Do you know what that means? Do you know what propitiate is? It is that it cancels sin. But he says that clearer later on. And it cancels sin for the living and the dead. It gets worse. And that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, there is truly, really, 
and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that said? That is, at the event, the body and the blood plus the soul and divinity of the Lord Jesus is present. And that there is made a conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole of the substance of the wine into the blood, which conversion the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. I also confess that under either kind alone, Christ is received whole and entire and a true sacrament. Now, guys, um, th- th- that, that language is more profound, but it's not as easy to understand as this. So I want to read you this too. This comes from the New York Catechism. Um, Jesus Christ gave us the sacrament of, sacrifice of the Mass to leave to his church a visible sacrifice which continues his sacrifice on the cross until the end of time. The Mass, get this, is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross. Holy Communion is the receiving of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. Now, gang, do you know what, as I said, what drove the Protestant reformers batty? Is that what the Roman Catholic Church is saying is that Jesus Christ is being sacrificed every time the Mass is being observed. That the sacrifice happens every time. It's the same as the sacrifice of the cross. Um, This is out of the Council of Trent. The sacrifice in the Mass is identical with the sacrifice of the cross inasmuch as Jesus Christ is a priest and victim in both. The only difference lies in the manner of offering, which is bloody upon the cross and bloodless on our altars. Now, gang, um, Protestantism revolted at the idea that Jesus Christ would be crucified all over again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Um, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ in the form of the host, the consecrated wafer, is in reality upon the altar, and that the priests have him in their power, that they hold him in their hands and carry him from place to place. He is in the host, the the little bread product thing. And that that change in the elements from coming to this bread products thing to the, the body of Christ takes place by the power of the priest. Power conveyed to the priest by the bishop at ordination. So when you are ordained in the Roman Catholic Church, you are given a power 
a power which takes bread and wine and actually turns it into the body and the blood of Christ and it is an identical sacrifice to the one that Jesus Christ made on the cross. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the thing that the Protestant reformers could not stomach. That Jesus Christ was being crucified again every time the sacrament was taken. Now, in response to that, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you got your Bibles available. If you can find the book of Hebrews. Guys, um, the book of Hebrews, we really don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews is. Um, some say it's Paul, and I, and I, I think it's pretty clear it's not Paul. Um, but it's, it's written, it's written to um, establish for a Jewish audience that Jesus Christ was their long-awaited, long-expected Messiah. So it's written with a real Jewish flavor, a real Jewish slant to it. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. And, and by the way, um, this is just one example of a book in the New Testament that cannot be understood unless you understand the Old Testament. So to devalue the Old Testament is to, is to hamstring you when it comes to the book of Hebrews, at least, as well as some other things. But one of the, one of the emphases, or the emphasis, is that Christ is a, is a better Moses, he's a better covenant, he's a better sacrifice, he's a better everything. And the reason that Christ is better is, is a, is a, is a subplot that is woven into the book of Hebrews, and I want you to see it. Let's start at chapter 7. And I'll read you verse 27. Uh, he, that is Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this, once for all, when he offered up himself. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that once-for-all thing is found several places in the book of Hebrews. But do you see what's being done there? Um, the author of the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is a better priest. He doesn't have a need to offer sacrifices daily like they did in the, in the temple, in, the, in the old, that, that Old Testament cultist. He doesn't have a need to do that. Because he's a greater priest who, since he did this once for all, he did it once. This view maintains that he does it over and over and over and over. I I, I don't know how many times you want me to say over. But every time the mass is celebrated, Jesus is sacrificed again. Gang. That's not a difference in an intramural debate that we have in eschatology. That is a fundamental, heretical difference. Either you're got, you've got a piece of heresy on your mind, or they do. That Jesus Christ is being crucified. But we're not finished in Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Uh, there again, I draw your attention to simply once for all. Uh, once was enough. Once was it. Now, those other priests, they had to do it over and over and over and over and over again, but not this one. 
Once was enough. Now go to chapter 10 and let me read you several verses because it, 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 it reappears, that same theme. I'm going to start in verse 10 of chapter 10 and read through verse 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is again. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. You see, those priests, oh, they offer repeatedly the same stuff over and over and over again, um, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see how often that is? And by the way, there's a, there's a, there's a piece of imagery here that, that teaches the same thing. For instance, in verse 11 it says, and every priest stands daily at his service. But then you come down to um, uh, verse 12, and it talks about Christ, and it says, and for all time, a single sacrifice, sin, um, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Oh, these guys are standing up there daily, and they're doing it over and over and over. But when Jesus did his, he sat down. Communicating what? It's done. I don't need to repeat this. It's done. Now, guys, this idea that Jesus Christ, that, that is, that this, it, the mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross, is to undercut all that I just read you out of the book of Hebrews. It is to undercut the finished work of Christ. It is to, this thing says, ex opera, says that by my being in it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get better. Also very consistent with the whole approach to one's definition of how one is saved. And it is, it is to do things that has meritorious value by my simply doing them. And the thing that I'm doing is that I'm crucified. Gang, that didn't come from Wikipedia. You're, you're welcome to read this um, on your way out if you like. Um, this is um, out of question 278 in the Roman Catholic, Catholic Catechism. Um, is the Holy Mass one and the same sacrifice with that of the cross? Now that's the question. Here's the answer. This is question 278. The Holy Mass is one and the same sacrifice with that of the cross inasmuch as Christ who offered himself a bleeding victim on the cross to his heavenly father continues to offer himself in an unbloody manner on the altar through the ministry of his priests. Guys, that is, um, that's a pretty serious distinction. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't state that emphatically enough. Um, uh, this is from question two, uh, 281. Um, in what ways does the church participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice? I'm not reading you all of it, just a sentence out of it. The Eucharist is likewise offered for all the faithful, living and dead, 
in reparation for the sins of all and to obtain spiritual and temporal benefits from God. Did you get that, guys? It's offered in reparation. Do you know what reparation means? Just a repayment for the sins of all and to obtain spiritual and temporal benefits from God. Ex operato. It's done. It's done in reparation for sins and to obtain spiritual and temporal benefits from God. And no matter how I come to it, if I do it, I get those spiritual and temporal benefits from God. One more. Uh, this is question 292. What are the fruits of Holy Communion? Um, Holy Communion. Listen to this, guys. What are the fruits of Holy Communion? Now, remember, it's operating ex opera operato. So this, if, if you do it, if you're in it, this is, this is the fruit of the Holy Communion to you. Because it operates ex opera operato. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Here's the answer. Holy Communion increases our union with Christ. I like that. It goes, Holy Communion increases our union with Christ and with His church. It preserves and renews the life of grace received at baptism and confirmation and makes us grow in love for our neighbor. It strengthens us in charity, wipes away venial sins, and preserves us from mortal sin in the future. Those are the benefits, those are the fruits that are going to be gained by simply participating in an event that claims to be the exact same sacrifice that Jesus made on the, on the cross, except that's the one on the cross was bloody and the one on the altar is non-bloody. So you see, guys, when it comes to, oh, you got these three different views of the Lord's Supper. Oh, you got consubstantiation, transubstantiation, and the Zwinglian view. Oh, okay. This is what's important. Transubstantiation, um, if you've, um, I mean, I think you've heard that word before. Um, it, it just means, the, the word transubstantiation means a change of substance. Um, um the Roman Catholic Church would insist on uh, uh, taking Jesus very literally in Matthew 26 when he says, this is my body. That's the ground upon which that is built. Um, what happens is that because of a power given to the priest in his ordination vows, he changes the, the common elements into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you imbibe, you are, chew, you are chewing Jesus' flesh. Now, um, it might taste like something, by the way, um, you don't get the cup. Only the priests get that. Uh, and I don't understand that, but that's withheld from the lady. You just get the, you just get the host. But what you're chewing may, may, may taste like bread. And they call that the accidents of the elements. Um, that's what transubstantiation is. Now guys, um, I got about four minutes, but, <clears throat> Um, oh, I, I, I want to read you this. I mean, um, I, I got, I'm going to do this fast, but um, Voltaire, who was the great French skeptic, Voltaire called um, the Mass the grand opera of the poor. 
And um, because really, mass is a an extended pageant. To make that point, when you go to school as a as a Roman Catholic priest, um, a priest in seminary goes through long periods of training and needs a marvelous memory. Listen. He makes the sign of the cross 16 times, turns towards the congregation six times, lifts his eyes to heaven 11 times, kisses the altar eight times, folds his hands four times, strikes his breast 10 times, bows his head 21 times, genuflects eight times, bows his shoulder seven times, blesses the altar with the sign of the cross 30 times, lays his hands flat on the altar 29 times, prays secretly 11 times, prays aloud 13 times, takes the bread and wine and turns it into the body and blood of Christ, covers and uncovers the chalice 10 times, goes to and fro for 20 times, and in addition, forms other acts. Now you got to get that all down. You got to memorize all that, and um, and you know, and get it right. And you know, when Martin Luther did his first one, um, he almost fainted because of the fear of doing one of those steps wrongly. And that's why it's called a pageant. It's called the opera for the poor. Protestantism revolted with that against that, ladies and gentlemen. So you, you see. It's just not, it's just not tiny. It's big. The Protestant view of, um, of, um, of the Lord's Supper, the one that, that any, most Protestants that you know of hold to, um, there, there, there are some who would suggest that it's only symbolic in value. It's called a memorial. I would say, I think that's probably a minority view of Protestantism. That when you participate in the Lord's Supper by faith, when you join, uh, when you participate by exercising faith in what these symbols symbolize, then indeed it becomes a means of grace. That God responds to faith. That is a vastly different position than saying that it operates just because it operates. Now, I can tell you this. Um, I don't know how you approach the Lord's table. We have the Lord's Supper here once a month. I have always felt like that the Lord's Supper had gotten a short shift in, in, in evangelicalism, and so that's why we do what we do. We don't tack it on at the end of the service. We try to make it the center part, the centerpiece of the of the service. And what I try to say to you is, uh, you're on your own here. <laughs> Best of luck. And I don't mean that. Um, you're on your own here, though. I do mean that. That you're going to have some things passing through your hands that are visible symbols of some pretty important stuff. Now, if you're doing that um, mindlessly, and forming your grocery list while so doing, then you can understand that it's not going to be much value to you. It's not going to help you. It's not going to increase your union with Christ. By the way, your union with Christ cannot be increased. You're either one with him or you're not. But it doesn't get bigger and smaller. No, ladies and gentlemen. That itself is a serious departure from biblical Christianity. Not to mention all these these other things that go on. So, um, one of the hopes that I had for tonight is this, not only to show you the area of this, but to underscore the importance of the sacrament as understood in the Protestant world. It is a means of grace, and when you um, participate 
by the exercise of faith, um, your soul is nourished. Um, it doesn't make you any more acceptable. It just makes you healthier. This is to communicate that to do something, you've merited something. It also is to um, re-crucify Christ. And one of the things that the Protestants used to make, that I mean, in the early days, that Luther and... Um, Luther made fun, and I don't know whether you could call this caustic or not, but one of the things that, that he used to say is, what happens if a crumb of the host falls to the, to the ground? And then he went on to say, and what happens if later on at night, a rat comes and eats the crumb that fell on the floor? Is the body of Christ on the floor? Um, I, I'm trying to just give you a flavor of the apoplexy that the reformers went through in dealing with the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. This is not simply a intramural debate about some finer theological issues. Forget the issue of transubstantiation. Forget Matthew 26. That is, this is my... Just forget that part. Just operate... Just, just, just try to wrestle with these two. Transubstantiation, I think, is is a whole lot to swallow. But I could probably choke it down if I had to. This is a denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is an assault on the gospel. Our Father, would you give us keen minds... Uh, not because we want to be smarter, but we want to embrace the beauty of the gospel, the gospel that describes the finished work of Jesus Christ, the gospel that says Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. So um, might our, our wrestling with these issues further clarify who we are? But might it give us a greater estimate, a greater value for the finished work of Christ, and a greater devotion to the one who lived the life that I should have lived and then died the death that I should have died. We ask all of this, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.